Hello, welcome, and would you look at this mess? I'm your host, Kate, and the purpose of this podcast is to trace, explore, and celebrate the unconventionality that lives within all of us. Hey, welcome back. Come on in if it's your first time. Welcome. Um, I'm just going to let you know right off the top that my kids are playing outside in the front yard, which they don't often do, Uh, but basically you might hear them a little bit on this recording because it's uh, noisy out there. So just forewarning, doesn't really matter, but I, I feel like, you know, there's this standard for podcasters to have this impeccable audio where the the person's voice fits certain kind of cadence and uh, smoothness and the background noise is minimal to nothing. There's clarity, all that. I am not going to be that kind of podcaster, at least not now. <laughs> so anyway, just expect that you might hear a little bit of background noise today. Um, all right. So What we're going to talk about today is uh, my professional job as an archaeologist, and I've talked about archaeology before, more about the practical stuff, Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about um, the uh, technical side. And I know I've covered a few things in the past, but it's been a little while. I don't know if you've listened to that episode or not. Um, If you haven't, then this then this will be new information. If you have, then maybe you might want to skip through a little bit of the beginning, but um, it's a good refresher anyway. So uh, yeah, let's start. So basically, um, I'm an archaeologist professionally. I have um, I have a bachelor's degree actually in anthropology, and archaeology is a subdiscipline of anthropology. There are four main types of anthropology. There's cultural anthropology. There's um, linguistics. There's for like uh, forensic stuff, um, or or medical anthropology, and there's archaeology. Those are the four basics. Um, that they might vary depending on who you ask, but that's basically what it boils down to. So um, I have a bachelor's degree in anthropology, so I focused both on the cultural anthropology as well as archaeology during that degree process. And I did a little bit of biochemistry as well for my honors part of my degree. Um, and so I actually ended up doing two, what would what amounted to two honors uh, classes during my, my final year um, because I did a cultural anthropology paper and then I did the biochemistry project as well. Um, so I did both of those. And then I went on to do my master's of archaeology. And so... Um, and that in that project also, uh, there was a minor focus in the cultural anthropological set of research. And so I was in a somewhat unique position as a student because I was doing both coursework for the archaeology side of things, the theoretical stuff, and then I was also doing some practical coursework as well in the uh, cultural anthropology stream as well, which most 
other students in archaeology have, I think I was actually the first student to do both of those things simultaneously. Um, so it's given me a bit of a, uh, um, an alternative education in that sense, that it's not strictly the technical archaeological stuff. Um, so, and that, I mean, I love that because I love archaeology for sure, but I also really love the human side of things. Archaeology is often sort of divorcing yourself from the current human world. You're looking mostly at the past peoples, whereas cultural anthropology is deeply embedded in people as they exist today. So I enjoy both of those things. And I really liked the way that my program worked out. And I like that, you know, it sort of set a new standard. There are some practices now that are in place in that department that were not prior to my coming in um, because we're starting to learn now. One of the big things in this profession, especially in North American archaeology, is that we are really having to pay more attention and devote more of our time to working with Indigenous communities. That's what the basis of my, my master's thesis was, was a a community-based collaborative project with a First Nation. And so what we're learning, again, is that we need to be taking more time and space to be developing those collaborative relationships and projects and being more inclusive of Indigenous, uh, including, you know, Métis, um, Inuit, and First Nations in our work again, is specifically in North America and Canada, because so much of what we, we research is Indigenous heritage. And so for a long time, this profession has been rooted in colonization, in the European mindset, and a lot of the theory and the things that we accept as being quote-unquote natural within the profession, we're starting to overturn those things because what we're, we're realizing is that everything was viewed from the European colonial uh, lens. And depending on your cultural background, the way that you interpret and read the archaeological evidence will be biased in that because of that background. And again, so this was sort of an unexamined uh, reality that a lot of previous archaeology archaeologists just assumed that the way that they saw things was the most accurate, the correct way. Um, and the most natural. And again, we're, we're figuring out now that that's actually not true. So we're being more inclusive and mindful of, of Indigenous culture and Indigenous perspectives and ways of knowing the world in order to better um, speak to the archaeological record. There is some contention. There are definitely some people within the profession who still don't see the value in that. Typically, those are the older white guys. But I do know people my age and my gender who also don't feel that this is an important part of the work, and it is my feeling that um, eventually those people will realize that that they do need to take on that that idea, whether or not they agree with it, because. Indigenous peoples are rightfully asserting themselves uh, much more strongly in the present, and I'm sure as the future, as we go on, um, so they're going to need to be well-versed in those, those ideologies and those practices in order to continue to be relevant within the profession. That's my feeling. 
I could be wrong. <laughs> but um, anyway, I, th- I feel that you're going to get much further in the field and you're going to be able to not hit or you're not going to hinder yourself so much um, if you are prioritizing strong relationships with local communities. Anyway, <laughs> that was a, quite a tangent that I was not anticipating uh, going into. But um, so that's that. So I say all of that because the biggest thing to understand about me and my history and my uh, my personal professional background is that I have worked exclusively in North America, in Canada specifically. And I mean, I did like, I helped out on an excavation for a couple days uh, in England when I was there. I just happened to come upon a site when I was visiting there and they were, it was a volunteer project. So they happily let me help them excavate and it was an old cottage and it was very interesting, but I don't count that as like archaeological experience necessarily. Um, So that was interesting. But other than that, I've only ever worked in Canada. And I think, so two sort of common things that people think about when they think archaeology, one is that they think that we dig up dinosaurs, which we do not. Um, We deal exclusively with human um, culture. And so we often are looking for the cultural materials or remains of people having been present in a particular place, which essentially boils down to us digging up old pe- people's old garbage, their refuse of having lived in a particular place. And uh, and we so we do deal a little bit with human remains, but that's sort of um, that goes into more of the medical anthropology side of things. So that kind of blends those two things, the archaeology and the medical anth. And um, it's not as common, especially, again, in North America, uh, because we don't generally, I don't know of any situation where we've had to, like, essentially exhume uh, modern people from graveyards that were that we know of here uh, so most often if it's if you're dealing with human remains they're archaeological remains from pre-contact and every community is different but by and large many indigenous communities do not want to have their um, ancestors unearthed and their remains uh, relocated it happens um, usually it's something that just can't be prevented although, um, you know, again, I'm a little bit unconventional, so my interpretation of can't be prevented may be different than, say, developers' <laughs> interpretation of that. Um, but I'll get into that a little bit deeper after when I talk about the roots of the kind of archaeology I do. So, um, yeah, I, I've i done exclusively work in Canada. And fortunately, uh, and I, I've learned this over the years after years of being in the field with newer people. I did what it's called a field school. Um, I think a lot of people do know what a field school is, uh, but basically it's like a training ground for learning how to do archaeology. But the majority of field schools are academic uh, types of work, which is very different than the type of work that I do and my colleagues do in cultural resource management. So what I find is that people will come, like younger, younger, I'm going to say younger kids, because I'm old enough now, I think, to say that. But, you know, people in their early 20s, sometimes even like 19, 18 years old, 
will come out to a CRM project and they're just totally culture shocked because they're used to an academic style of excavation, which is much more slow, much more data driven and much more sort of calculated in how they excavate. Um, The excavation blocks themselves might be larger. And so there's just, it's just a whole different methodology Um, And it's not nearly as laborious, typically. Um, Very interesting. Usually there's a lot of interesting information that comes from those kinds of sites. But again, it's not so hard on your body. And so a lot of these people show up and there's a a reasonably high number of people who don't make it past the first two weeks because they go hard. They don't or they don't prepare themselves or they're not aware of how hard it is on your body. And then they they have this extraordinarily like extraordinary pain in your back and your hands and places you didn't even know you could hurt you just in pain and so they give up on it because they think that this is what the reality is and really what happens is you go through this sort of transitional period where you are going to be in a lot of pain and you're going to be popping a lot of Advil for about two to four weeks and then your body adjusts to the labor and the uh, intensity of the work and most people come around and are able to do it without as much issue. You're not necessarily going to be never uncomfortable or in pain, but it's not going to be like the full body aches that you get when you first start. So what I was saying about that is that I uh, was very fortunate that I was able to do a field school that was actually on a CRM project. It was not, it was sort of actually a blend. It was not um, a an academic site in the sense of the methodology uh, being slow, methodical, all of that. Uh, it was a CRM project because it was it was only excavated because of development that was impending. Uh, the difference between that project and other ones is that there were students who were working on those projects and that particular project that were basing their theses on the data that we collected there. So there was slightly more rigorous data collection in at that site than I than what we do and I do on a daily basis now, um, unless we you know we get to a place where we do want to be able to do research based on the excavation. But um, it's hard to explain without having any kind of a visual. Um, what the data collection looks like and what the difference is because, yeah, this is this is why field schools are so important because it really teaches you what we have to do and how we do it. Um, and essentially, a lot of the time, the methodology changes in order to accommodate expediency. Um, so being able to move more quickly because the primary difference between academic and CRM archaeology is where the money comes from. So in an academic setting, it's going to come from grants from the government or other institutions. When you're doing CRM archaeology, the money is coming from a developer, a proponent of development. And so those, so that dictates a lot of the time how quickly you need to move through something because not only are you, you have a budget, um, you have time constraints and all that, but so essentially, you are the thing standing in between um, the, the the ground and the developer getting onto the ground to be able to do what they want to do. So the archaeology is expected to be reasonably expedient when you do CRM stuff. Um, 
Whereas academic archaeology is about the information that you're trying to collect in order to do research and to gather more information and knowledge about the archaeological record. So it's much more slow and methodical, and uh, there's a lot more uh, in-depth methodology involved in that kind of archaeology. So like I said, this, the, the field school that I did was sort of a hybrid between those things because we tried to collect as much meaningful information as we could, but we were also also on a timeline and a budget and uh, working under the Ministry of Transportation. They were putting a highway in, so we were trying to operate with expediency in order to appease that proponent of uh, development. And uh, so that's so that's my background. So like I said, I've worked exclusively in Canada. I've worked in northern Ontario, southern Ontario, and a little bit in Alberta, uh, way, way in the north of Alberta. <laughs> um, and so, okay, so this is something that also, like, there's so many layers here. I could honestly talk about this stuff forever. Um, but the the way that archaeology operates and how you do it and, and how, how you find things, like the, the conditions you find them in, vary depending on the ecological zone that you are excavating in. And so in my work up in northern Ontario and in northern Alberta, the ecological zones there are pretty consistent and very similar. So it's different there, the archaeology, than it is in the south down here. Um, and especially uh, between southern Ontario and northern Alberta, the archaeology was very different because there's not a lot of development happening up in Alberta where I was working versus down here where it's just constant. Um, so that's anyway, that's where I've worked. And uh, that's my background. So talking about archaeology, the the CRM stuff, again, this is a development driven uh, industry. And so we are basically couched within the environmental assessment, the environmental impact assessments that need to be completed before a proponent of development can go into an area and reasonably destroy it before they rebuild something. Um, so we, we are involved sort of midway through the environmental stuff. And then um, after, usually after we've completed our work, then developers are okayed to come in and do their work. We do, however, usually have uh, a, an archaeologist and often an indigenous monitor um, on site when the construction starts because it does happen that sometimes things get missed when we're doing archaeological assessment. And so if that happens, then the archaeologist is on hand to stop construction investigate further and figure out what the next steps are sometimes it's nothing and you just you can just go keep going sometimes it is something and we have to kind of go back and reassess the area and collect more of that those those materials and stuff um, so and so I should explain actually um, when I say indigenous monitor this is somewhat of a newer concept um, because since, oh, I'm trying to think, you know what, I'm going to try and, I have a, a guy I work with who I'd really like to guest on the podcast. He is a monitor, or they're called field liaisons. Um, 
and I would like to talk to him about this and explain it further. But essentially, uh, the Indigenous monitors are there to monitor the project and ensure that um, their cultural heritage is being respected, that the artifacts are being respected, that the job is being done with due dil diligence and correctly. Um, because again, there's this there's this tension in this industry because it is development driven, and so it's. Um, the the contracts are are awarded based on bids same as most other similar industries right if you want to get a contractor you might ask for some a few different people to to give you a proposal or a bid and then you pick the one that is like the best cost for the best work or whatever uh, but what's happened in archaeology is that especially big engineering firms, they have departments dedicated to doing archaeology. Um, and because they are engineers and the engineering firms are the ones who hold the purse strings, they dictate uh, and and are more inclined to rush in that sense. So it happens that things get missed, things don't get recorded correctly, things get destroyed by accident, all things like that. So monitors are there particularly to keep an eye on that stuff. Um, and then they have the power to stop the archaeology or, you know, or report things that they see as being um, not up to snuff, right? Um, again, I've been reasonably fortunate that the firms I've worked for throughout my career have all been one of the some of the better ones in terms of their relationships with with indigenous communities, and their uh, views and stance on the presence of indigenous people on sites, and just generally speaking, being a bit more open minded and more um, I don't know what the word is tolerant I guess I don't know. So I haven't personally experienced anything where like a monitor was really riled up and upset about something. Um, and so we tend to have very strong relationships, but I've heard lots of stories of other firms, private or whatever, um, where there's a lot of tension between the archaeologists and the monitors because the monitors demand excellence and the archaeologists are under pressure to get it done at any cost. And so, again, there's this tension there. We, I don't tend to experience it myself um, because our company does highly value the work and the quality and, and being respectful of Indigenous communities and ancestors. That comes at a cost, though, and so it can be difficult with with this kind of stuff because they're going to get outbid on things, and then people come along and do shoddy work, <laughs> and so it's it's a whole thing. The industry is a bit messed up, the way that it works because it it, it rewards the efficiency regardless of the quality of the work, because a lot of our cultural. Um, ideologies are rooted in development and development is positive and sprawl or not sprawl but but uh, progress is a good thing and we should be strive we should be striving to, to progress again at any cost so the cost in this case is the the archaeology and uh, you can't get it back that's the the primary thing to bear in mind is that once something has been unearthed and removed you can't put it back you can't get that information back you can reasonably collect artifacts and stuff but a lot of uh, the information that you're able to gather about um, archaeological sites is the context of 
how and where you find materials. Um, and this, so this is an important part of stuff that often gets lost, especially in Southern Ontario, because we have lots of projects where we are looking for, we're looking, we have a site, but it's on an operational farm. And so this farms have been tilled for a hundred years. <laughs> and so you find things kind of all over the place and completely out of context because they've been removed from the under under uh, source of, of sediment. And so then you lose that, that part of the information. So there's a lot of that going on. Um, and so because uh, until, I don't know, reasonably recently, the 2000s-ish, there was no standard for doing the archaeological assessment prior to development. So again, there are projects too, like one I'm working on right now, where this is a pipeline and they came through in the seven, I think the fifties and then the seventies again, and they dug these trenches, they put pipelines in, then they refilled it with the dirt that was there. And what we've discovered is that there was some pretty significant archaeological materials in there. And so now we can collect those materials and they're really fascinating and very cool, but it's it's all mixed together, so there's no context. We can't see what what might have been actually happening at this site when people left it behind. So that's a bit of a, a bummer, um, but it is what it is. So the technical side of what we do, um, actually, no, you know what? <laughs> I want to answer this question because I find that this is one of the most common things that I get asked, and I think it's so funny um, because I tell people that I'm an archaeologist and then and this is why I was saying like my personal background is exclusively in North America and mostly at this point mostly southern Ontario and so people ask me the question like well where do you do archaeology around here <laughs> or like how are you going to be employed if like archaeology is only in the Middle East or you know they think of like the the, the, the Greek um, uh, uh, acropolis, acropolis and stuff so People don't conceptualize archaeology as being a North American thing. And so this, I think, is part of why people assume that when you say you do archaeology in North America that you're digging up dinosaurs because there's some layers here in terms of like thinking of past peoples having lived in the continent, on the continent of North America, uh, because we don't really think of especially indigenous communities as having a depth of history, which they do have. And then we don't think about the fact that, like, you know, Europeans have been here for a couple hundred years. And so we do have some history there, too. When we think about archaeology, a lot of times people think about really, really, really deep history, like thousands and thousands of years, tens of thousands of years. And there is some archaeology in North America that dates back to as far as 10 to 12,000 years, but that's reasonably um, early. That's quite early. And that's not very common at least not my experience. <laughs> um, but we do find things from, excuse me, um, you know, four, five, six thousand years ago in, in, in this, on this continent. And uh, it is of great interest to a lot of people. So anyway, so people ask me, like, where do you do archaeology in these parts? And they ask this question also because we're extremely covert in our practice. Um, it is pretty rare that you will actually see archaeologists doing their work um, because 
Well, so I, actually, I was thinking about this last week. We got off work early, and I was driving home, and there were there were these archaeologists out, a, a different company. I don't know who it was, um, but they were doing some some stuff on the side of a highway, on the side of Highway Six. And I was like, oh man, that's one of the first times I've ever noticed like active archaeology happening somewhere near me, even though I know it's happening all the time. It's happening everywhere. Because again, remember, <laughs> when development is proposed, any kind of development, there has to be an archaeological assessment that goes goes before that. And I, I don't know what this what the actual numbers are, but there's a lot of areas where there are sites because what we do is there are four stages. Oh man, I should have fin- finished my other thought. Okay, sorry. Whew. Let's finish first thought and then I'll explain the stages. So we're very covert intentionally because we want to protect our information. And so this is the problem that if people know we're in all of these places, people are really curious and interested in it. And that's fair, but they don't necessarily understand that you can't just go rooting around looking for stuff. We have a very specific kind of methodology that we use in order to collect that information. So like when somebody says, oh, I've been finding points and I've been finding, or they say arrowheads, but whatever, I'll give them that. Um, And they say like, they take it home with them. And I go, you should, sorry. Um, you should report those things because, and you should not take that with you. If you see something, leave it there, report it to the ministry, because then archaeologists can come in and actually excavate or investigate at the very least if there's something of um, utility there that we could collect information. Um, It's not a foolproof thing because we may not have a, be able to get a permit to do the work there, but at the very least don't disturb it (laughs) because that's our, that's our data um, is the, it's in the ground. So People don't tend to have a good sense of that, and their their level of curiosity drives them to to look into things. And so we don't really ever want people to know where we're working. Um, we 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 take we go to great pains to keep what we do very private. Um, and it's helpful <laughs> that a lot of the time we end up in places where you're not in plain sight of where people are spending their time. Um, so it's kind of fun because, I mean, for me anyway, you'd have to be the, my kind of personality, but it can be fun because you might have to hike into your site. And so you grab all your equipment, your backpack, you bring all of your food and your water and everything you're going to need for the day. And you hike into a site and you're in the trees or you're in a field or whatever, but you're not near roads. You're not necessarily near um, a lot of people, this, it's variable. And so there are situations when you are in those places that are very public, but it's often not really visible to the public. And people also don't really know what archaeology looks like. So I feel like a lot of people have probably seen archaeology happening and they didn't recognize it for what it was because I feel like there's, uh, not a strong sense of what it looks like when it's actually being done. So, so that's why, though, people don't necessarily consider that there's lots of archaeological work happening all the time all around us because, A, 
um, there's a sense of we don't have the depth of history here to warrant archaeological investigation, and B, because we do such a good job of being covert and private about it that you don't see it happening very often, and so there's a sense of it doesn't happen, but, you know, the absence of evidence doesn't mean it's the absence of anything, (laughs) so... Um, so yeah, we do lots. There is lots and lots and lots of work happening all around. Um, and so anyway, so what I was going to say before I had to stop myself from going on other tangents, um, we have four stages that we work in, in archeology, span uh, in CRM archeology. span Um, and so the way it works is, Again, if you have someone proposing development, you have an archaeologist go out and they do a stage one. Now, what I've learned is that um, stage one, and it, it can be expensive to do in isolation on its own. So a lot of times, if there's if there's a good chance that you're going to have something there, um, or just if there's a good chance it's going to you're going to have to go to a stage two anyway, they will do a stage one and two simultaneously. Um, so. That basically means that you're going to the place where the where the proposed development will happen, and you're looking around to determine whether or not there are the conditions for the potential for a site. And so there's actually a standards like a guide of standards and, and practices uh, that's that's was developed by the ministry and is applied so that archaeologists kind of have a framework for what it is that we're looking for in our local region to determine whether or not there might be a site there. Um, and then this, so that's a stage one. And sometimes actually a lot of the time that can be done, it's called a desktop review. So you can do it from a computer at a desk. You can look at aerial photos. You can do some background uh, on the history of the area and you can kind of determine whether or not there will probably be archeology span there. Um, and then the stage two is actually going and testing. It's called test pitting. Um, so you're testing different spots uh, within that area. So you'll have a tract or a, a, an area of land where they're saying, oh, we're going to build X, Y, or Z here. And you go to the site and you dig little holes about five meters apart from each other on a grid all along the area. And you see what you find. And uh, the holes are usually about 30 centimeters in diameter, usually about the shovel, like the width of a shovel in a round circle hole. And then you dig down until you find what is called subsoil. So that means that's the soil that exists before any of the sedimentation happened where people were living on the land. So you go through many layers or sometimes one or two layers of uh, sediment and you see what you find in those little holes. And so that can be, it depends on, it depends on these different factors, but so basically a stage two, you would do these, these uh, test pits between five and 10 meters apart from each other along this whole area. And so that's reasonably supposed to give you a view into what exists in the ground beneath. It's not foolproof. There are times when test pitting doesn't reveal what is actually there. So so if you do the, the stage two test pitting and you go, yeah, there really wasn't anything. Okay, and so, <laughs> sorry. Depending on what it is that you find, uh, again, there is a guideline for whether or not you it triggers a stage three assessment. So, for example, if you're looking at indigenous stuff, if you find a certain um, 
certain materials, like a tool, like a stone tool, that triggers intensification. Um, or if you find like a certain number of bits of stone from making a stone uh, tool, they're called flakes, then you have to get a certain number of them and then that triggers intensification and so on and so forth. So uh, there are like, again, these, these numerical guidelines for if you find stuff, how much of it do you have to find uh, and blah, blah, blah. And then that sort of dictates whether or not it's recommended or triggered to a stage three. And a stage three assessment is when uh, you do those same sort of tests, but there are test units and a unit is a one meter square. So same thing, you will test with the units. It's, again, it's called intensification or whatever, uh, or intensification. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's got so many layers. Uh, intensification is when you have the test pits and then you find something like a tool. You intensify, so you open that area up in the one meter square. Uh, and then that kind of gives you, you can collect more information if there's something else there. And so that, that helps you determine what might also be there. Um, and then, so yeah, then you go to stage three and the stage three is the same thing. You're about five meters apart with these one meter square units. You're just, again, trying to collect as much information as possible without taking all of the ground out because that's expensive and invasive. And if it's not necessary, then obviously developers want to avoid that. So you check out the stage three, do all your units, and then you go from there. Same thing. There's a guideline for depending on how much you find or what kinds of things you find, then it determines whether or not you have to go to a stage four. And this is a mitigation stage. So this is where you say, okay, there is significant, uh, important archaeological material here and the development is going to go forward. So we need to mitigate this site. We need to take these materials out of here so that they don't they don't get ruined and the site destroyed by the development. And so then that's when it opens up what's called, you, you do an excavation block. So you do those one meter squares, but you do them side by side by side so that you open up a big square-ish or like squared off uh, hole in the ground. And uh, again, depending on what you find, how much of things you find, it determines how far out the excavation block has to go. So for example, you dig three one meter square units in a hole and you there's coordinates. So you have your northern and eastern coordinates and you go, okay, well on this one, um, we found... 10 flakes and a tool. So that means we have to keep going. We have to excavate the units on all sides of that one. So picture it as like an L shape. So you have to now excavate the one to the north of that. You have to excavate a one meter unit to the east and to the west of that. And so if we say that the, the, the south one was already excavated as part of those first three. And so it moves out from there and you look at what was found in those additional three units. And so maybe unit on the east didn't come up with much. So you leave that side alone. Unit on the, the north and the west, those two were highly productive. So now you move, you move a little one, one east, one west, 
and then another west. <laughs> anyway, again, it's hard to, to explain without any visuals, uh, but, but essentially that's how it works. So until you figure out where the site essentially ends, and that is dictated by a tapering off of collection of information or collection of materials. So you start finding less and less stuff and you go, oh, okay, we're hitting a limit here. We're getting to the edge of this site. And so you can kind of figure out how, how big it is. And that's how you mitigate an archaeological project or an archaeological site, sorry. And uh, again, it's not a totally <laughs> foolproof process. And um, it's extremely difficult to budget for. Um, it's very, very common that what is budgeted to the proponent um, is, <laughs> is off by a little or a lot and things take longer than what you expect to get the job done. And that happens for a number of reasons, uh, namely weather. If the weather is bad, that's more of like a time budgetary thing than like a monetary budget thing, but so things might take longer if the weather is no good. Um, and then things also will take longer if, if it's really hot. Um, and because when we have policies in place that like once it gets to a certain temperature, you've got to start taking heat breaks. And so you end up eating up more of your day just by sitting to cool down versus being able to continuously be working. Uh, so that eats up some time and budget. And more often than not, what happens is what we expect we're going to find at a particular site is inaccurate and we find much more than that or we we're we're having difficulty getting to the limit of something and we're like oh we thought we were going to excavate 20 units but actually now we're excavating 100 units and so that adds a significant amount of time um, to how long it takes a project to be completed and so this is the fundamental problem with this type of work is that you don't know what you will find until you start digging it out. And so we have to preemptively propose, we think it'll be this much and it's going to take this long. Um, but in reality, it might take much, much longer because you might find a lot more, etc. So it is a difficult industry in that sense. And it can be very stressful, I'm sure, for our you know project managers and stuff because they're trying to use their best judgment and figuring out what it's going to cost, but uh, they may not always know. And again, there's all kinds of extenuating things that come up that can cause delays and uh, setbacks and that sort of thing. So it, it's a lot. I am going to finish up this episode here. This one's gotten quite long. <laughs> not surprising. Um, but I'm going to talk about this again at some point. Uh, I, as you can tell, I, I'm interested in my work. I think that it's really cool. And I think that it's really important that people do have a sense of what it is that we do, how we do it, how it operates, all of that, because there is this, this, um, so people are interested in archaeology, but again, there's a lack of understanding about the importance of, of doing archaeological assessments and mitigations and the, the depth of culture and time in this part of the world. So it seems like people don't value it as much. And so the more we can sort of do the outreach and discussing it and exposing people to it, the more likely we're going to find that people value it. And because we are under, on the whim of the government, the government dictates how much archaeology needs to be done, um, the, the, the standards for it, and all of that. 
So <laughs> if we have more people advocating for the importance of archaeology, then it's more likely that we would get a little bit more, um, I don't know, I want to say respect from maybe the government and from the public on what it is that we're doing and we're trying to accomplish. And the, again, the, the, the importance of doing it, because again, when you remove something through construction, you cannot get that back. And a lot of times it destroys things. And it's important to have respect for the people who lived here before. And I mean, in an ideal world, in my view, now this may not be the most popular opinion among archaeologists because archaeologists like to find cool stuff. But um, in my view, in an ideal world, we would find nothing. When someone says that they want to develop an area, we would go in and we would assess it and we go, there's nothing here. That's fine to me. Um, that being said, now here's another layer that I want you to think about because it's not something that has occurred to a lot of archaeologists or lay people in general. Um, indigenous communities historically and presently have a strong connection to landscape. And a lot of their history is built on the landscape. And so their stories, their history, their way of knowing the world is deeply rooted in the, in the landscape. And so you may not find anything archaeologically, like materials, which that could also just be an effect of soil acidity or, or preservation of things not, not happening in that area. But anyway... It's not necessarily um, the right thing to be able to say, oh, there's nothing archaeologically here, therefore there's no value in keeping this landscape the way that it is, so go ahead and, and destroy it and build something here. Because we don't necessarily know if the communities that are local to the area have a connection to that landscape and might want to record some things or might have an opinion about that. And so this is something that we need to become more conscious of and be continuously working towards understanding Indigenous culture and history and, um, and perspectives in order to, you know, not continue to destroy them. Um, so that's my personal view on stuff. And again, I'm not necessarily among the majority in my profession or, you know, <laughs> generally speaking. Um, but this is stuff that occurs to me. And I think that it's really important that we're mindful about these things because um, we've, we've just engaged in such a long, long history of colonization. And a lot of us don't make the connection between development and the continued oppression and colonization of indigenous peoples. Um, and so we need to be more conscious of that anyway. Okay. I will leave it there. <laughs> um, I'm, I actually wanted to answer some other questions that I, that I get when I uh, talk about archaeology, but I didn't get to them and I will do a follow-up episode about this because obviously I have a lot to say. So uh, feel free to send me questions if you have some that I can address in the next episode. Maybe I'll try to do more of a viewer question or listener question kind of uh, style. And uh, thank you for joining me as always. I have enjoyed this conversation and I'm looking forward to uh, catching up with you and doing another one. And next week, okay, so th this is the thing. I've already planned my next week's episode. This is I would have made this a two-parter. Mm, maybe I will. 
<laughs> oh, I can't make up my mind. So I had thought about doing an episode next week dedicated to discussing perfectionism and parenting and uh, sh- showing or modeling for our children communication that is um, still good communication or at least uh, reparative when there is conflict. So I'm going to debate it. I'm going to go back and forth a little bit. So either there will be a part two to this next week or the parenting uh, modeling stuff will be next week. But if it's not next week, then it'll be the following week. I don't know. I guess it's going to be a surprise. (laughs) I have to decide by tomorrow because I'm going to either make this part one or just a standalone. So anyway, I'll let you know. And thank you again for joining me. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love it if you would give it a rating on iTunes or yeah, um, Apple Podcasts um, or a, a review if you're really inclined. And if you're on Instagram, I would also love it if you would share the, the podcast posts. Um, yeah, I have had a good time today. So thank you again. And I will see you in the next one.